I got to tell you, I cannot overemphasize how blessed I personally have been memorizing scripture. I remember, I don't know when it was, maybe seven years ago, at the beginning of one of his sermons, John Piper uh, met, shared the, an entire chapter from Second Corinthians with his congregation, and I said, yeah, well, that will never be me. I will never do such a thing. Uh, but only because I thought it was just too ridiculously impossible, but I now realize it's, it's quite possible and doable. And uh, the last thing I memorized was Hebrews 10 for the last scripture memory. And I hope you're choosing 12 verses, which is uh, really the goal of scripture memory uh, to read. But the... Um, the last part of Hebrews 10 says this. It says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, or I will not be pleased in him. I think is what the NIV says. But we are not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And uh, you know, when I was a, a, a newer believer, there was a guy by the name of Bob George, and he had, uh, he used to appear on like mainstream radio, Christian radio, and he was of the view that it was impossible for us to do anything to please God. Because once you're saved, he sees Christ in you and he cannot possibly be more pleased than that. But there, this and other verses make clear, even for New Testament believers, we absolutely can please God and we also can do things that do not please God. It says in verse 38 of Hebrews 10, if anyone draws back, from walking with God, says, I will not be pleased. And then conversely, but those who do not draw back, but continue forward, he will be pleased. This is just, uh, uh, this, is, this is something that um, is central, in my opinion, to us living a life characterized by joy, the fact that I can please God. Wow! That just gives me joy. So this guy, anyway, his name was Bob George. He said, there's nothing that you can do um, to, to please God because he sees Christ in you. Now that is true. Christ is in you and you are sort of that vertical relationship you are blameless before him in the sense that you're prepared for heaven. You're perfect in Christ. But you, the Bible is, is so clear. Hebrews, I mean, Ephesians chapter 5, we can do things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, rather, that's the end of, is that the Ephesians 5 or is that? 
Ephesians 4. No, that's Ephesians 4. End of Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Anyway, so this guy was very um, popular, and I used to listen to him on the radio, and I would get very frustrated because um, he would say things like, you don't have to ask God for forgiveness anymore because he's forgiven all your sins. He would say things like this. And um, eventually, he, it came out that he was consorting with a prostitute and you never heard from him again. In other words, his theology, our theology, what we believe actually means something. It'll lead us either into good behavior or into bad behavior and we can please God. Why in the world am I talking about all this? Because Job, we saw the book of Job, one of the longest books of the Bible. It is the oldest book of the Bible. There was this, this remarkable exchange between God and Satan, in which Satan tells God the only reason that Job follows you is because you put a hedge of protection around him and you, you bless him. If you take away his blessings, he will curse you. And Satan is saying the same thing about you. If you take away Lena's blessing, she will not follow you, in you anymore. She'll leave you. If you take away Asagi's blessings, he won't follow you anymore. And so the Lord literally let Satan take these things away. So what we see in chapters one and two is first he, he Satan kills all Job's children Takes away, kills all his servants, destroys all his property, and then in chapter two, and, and at the end of that, at the end of chapter one, at the end of losing all that, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then God says to Satan, you see, He's still blessing me. And Satan says, well, that's because you haven't touched his body. If you take away his health, he'll curse you to your face. Amazingly, God says, okay, go do it. He strikes his body, he's covered with boils from head to toe. And uh, he's covered with boils from head to toe, but, but still... Uh, he does not sin. In fact, when his wife comes to him and says, say, why are you holding fast to this relationship with God? Curse him and die. He says to her, you speak as a foolish woman. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? It says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And all of heaven is looking and God is pleased. The fact that I can do something that pleases the Lord gives me an amazing amount of joy. 
And so um, what happens next, three guys show up who knew Job very well, and Job begins to speak. It, it, for seven days, they're silent, and then uh, he begins to speak in chapter three, and he begins just to say, I wish I had never been born. He was just in such pain and such adversity. This is um, what he begins to, to say. And uh, in chapter four, and I mean, there's going to be a lot of chapters after this. <laughs> where we're going to hear the friends and they're going to uh, be trying to explain Joe's circumstances and why they are happening and they're wrong. Now, they will say things in the middle of some of their long what do you call them? Soliloquies, soliloquy, whatever the word. They, they, these long, they're long statements that there's embedded in the statements is is truth, and a lot of times, you know, this is uh, what Satan does, right? Satan will take ninety percent of truth, but that ten percent making it into a lie, which is what makes it really, really effective. And you know, over the years, what I have learned beyond a shadow of a doubt. The people that the devil uses the most are right in the body of Christ, the weak ones in the body of Christ. Wow, they're the most difficult to deal with. I mean, the people in the world, uh, yeah, no doubt. The Bible says in the book of John, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. But uh, the world... After a while, you get used to how to deal with them, but I'm telling you, Satan will take the weakest links and he'll go after them. He'll take the weakest links in the church and he will just go after them and he'll use them. And boy, uh, are these guys used by the enemy. Chapter four says, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered. So Joe's like saying, I wish I had never been born. He's just... Uh, he's just airing what is true, which I think um, I think any of us would be feeling. I, I wish this is just too much. He's just airing his feeling feelings, and and this guy. Now he did really good for seven days. He kept his mouth shut, but then he opens it, and uh, yeah, I said it the last time we were in Job. It's better to. Uh, keep your mouth shut and have people think you're a fool, then open your mouth and remove all doubt. So we're, before the end of this, um, all these guys are going to be playing the fool. So he begins with Job, and he says, if one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? May meaning you're speaking such nonsense that it would be impossible for someone not to speak up. He's not really speaking nonsense at this point. He is going to get to the point where he's going to sin with his lips. However, I agree with uh, the 
what is said about it that Job is provoked, he's tempted by these guys, he's led basically to sin with his lips by these guys um, as they uh, are misrepresenting the Lord. Verse 3, surely you have instructed many and you have strengthened weak hands. So uh, Job had a reputation for strengthening the weak. Verse 4, your words have um, upheld him who was stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble needs, knees, but now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touched you, and your troubles. Is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright ever cut off? So verse 7, he begins what is going to be a mistake that is repeated over and over and over again for, with these guys, which is if someone is living a righteous life, the Lord is not going to make them suffer. Now, it is absolutely is the case that sin will lead to suffering in our lives, including hidden sin. Anytime there's suffering in our lives, the first thing we should say, Lord, is there something going on with me? I mean, just this week, I was in a prayer walk on, when was that? Monday morning, I was walking with the Lord. That was yesterday morning. And I just felt dry, and I'm like, okay, Lord, why am I feeling dry? This is not good. I don't like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perish if I don't get your joy. And he, he just spoke to me really clearly. I had a judgmental attitude towards a, a certain person, and I was able to go, you're right, Lord. I'm acting like I'm better than this person, and I'm not. So it's very important when you're in suffering, you ask the Lord, Lord, are you doing something? Is there some sin in my life? Are you trying to say something? That's not the case, though, with much suffering. And yet, that is what, it, you know, that is what's going to happen here. Um, they are going to be accusing them of hidden sin for the next however many chapters. It's like 30 chapters or something. And verse 8, he continues, Even I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, if you're doing bad, if you, whatever man, we were in Galatians, right? Whatever, whatever man sows, he will reap. So if you're doing evil, God's going to bring evil on your life. And so, Job, you must have some evil that you're not telling us about. Verse 9, by the blast of God, they perish, and by the breath of his anger, they are consumed. There's been many, many die who are righteous people. If you don't believe that, that read Tortured for Christ, which uh, I think it's one of those books which should be required reading. It's about persecution in Romania during the Soviet uh, years. And uh, they, uh, the folks in that book, uh, many of whom died, as well as many Christians throughout history. And then there was another person who died even when he was innocent. What was his name? 
Jesus Christ. And so they're just wrong. Verse 10, the roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So in verse 12, he, he uh, begins now something which uh, is terrible to do anyone, to anyone, and that is to make out like you've heard from God about them when you really haven't. Verse 12, it says, Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it in disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake, then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundations Foundation is in the dust who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom. So what is going on here? Basically what he is saying is, I've heard, I've heard from God. Anyone who's suffering, like you're suffering, Job, the Spirit of God told me, I've heard a word from the Lord here. This has clearly got to be your sin because God would never do anything else like this. Now, uh, listen, I, I, I do believe that we can seek and hear from the Lord. It troubles me when I hear people, God told me this, God told me that, rather than I think God has told me this. And I think God told me that. Exodus chapter 20. Anyone know what's in Exodus chapter 20? Shout it out. The Ten Commandments. And which commandment is you shall not take the name of your, the Lord God in vain? The third commandment. Very good. And uh, you shouldn't take the name of your Lord God in vain. And, and we usually think of that as, you know, when someone says, oh, you know, oh my God, or something like that. Which, by the way, it's not okay. You should el try to eliminate that from your, from your um, vocabulary or, the, or from the way you talk, rather. But um, there's another way of taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, and that is to tell something. God said this when he didn't. That's using the name of the Lord and a wicked way. And that's what this guy's doing. He's literally saying, I saw a vision from God. And, and what this vision is telling me is, uh, 
is you're in sin. You're in some kind of hidden sin, and, and the Lord, it, it can't be otherwise. That's just contrary to the character of God. And so we need to be careful. I do feel like we need to seek out the Lord's wisdom for us and those around us. But when we're counseling others, I'm telling you, you better be very, very um, careful before you said, God told me this about you. You know, as we go through this, uh, it's interesting, we're in a parallel in, in Philippians on Sunday, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he's in prison. Paul is in prison when he's saying that. And there's going to be some good parallels here to try to, to, to talk about how is it that there can be suffering? How, is it, how, how, how can that be consistent with what the Lord wants in our life, for example, joy, his joy. There is a place of joy in our life, and um, one of them is uh, that we can, even though we've been, even though there's no hidden sin in our life, we're taking what is in front of us as from the Lord, and we're saying, just as, as Job did at the beginning, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, God, I trust your word that you say that you're good. I trust what you told Mo Moses when you passed before him in Exodus 34. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving and, uh, transgression and sin, but by no means clear in the guilty. I, I believe, uh, Lord, that, that you are who you say you are, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness, and somehow this thing is good for me. We can do that in suffering. You're going to be glorified in it. But I tell you, Satan is going to be trying to convince you otherwise. That's, and, he's, and, and there's a good chance he will use Christians to speak. Satan, that is. And so this is, um, yeah, I got a word from the Lord. No, he didn't have um, a word from the Lord. And um, he continues in... Chapter 5, yeah, he says, Call out now, is there anyone who will answer you, and to which of the holy ones will you turn? Meaning, if you cry out to God or to anyone, no one's going to help you now because of whatever, this hidden sin in your life. For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. Now, I cannot imagine a more cruel thing than to tell someone who just lost their children that uh, the reason that they lost their children 
was because of some hidden sin or even outward sin for that matter in their life. But that's what this guy's doing. And, you know, as you read Job, it's important to understand that Satan will use words like this, not necessarily audibly, but will just do it to your own mind. Speak like this. He will speak like this, and um, um, he, he will, he'll definitely, he will lie to you. I, um, I know uh, in, in, this, in this particular instant, instance that the sons were, were killed. Other times, kids will go into rebellion. And uh, I, I had a child who has given me permission to share with the church. One of my five kids went into rebellion. Now she's back serving the Lord. But she says, why don't you ever use me as an example? I'm like, what? I don't know. I, I haven't until now, but uh, I haven't until actually tonight. She told me that like two years ago, but I haven't really talked about it publicly much. But one of the things that happened in my mind was just lies from the devil. You know, what kind of parent are you that all this happened to you? Your mind will start lying to you by thoughts put there by the accuser of the brethren. And remember, that is what Satan's name is. He's called Satan in chapter one and two. The Hebrew, that means adversary or the accuser. In Romans and Revelation, I think it's 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Satan will accuse you whether it's through an audible voice or not. Now, Granted, I was not, we were not perfect parents, no parent is, and in some cases, um, there will be like serious things that you did in your past that you have to, that, that were wrong, and I, I'm not one of those people who think every time a kid is in rebellion, their parents are at no fault whatsoever, because um, that's not the case either, but, you know, it's a Great opportunity to go to your child and say, listen, I did this and I did that and I was wrong. It's, God's always doing something, right? What does Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 say? <laughs> wow! <laughs> to live is Christ, to die is gain. We're in Philippians, so to live is Christ. Christ, Jesus is always doing something and he's always doing a, a, a deep work. And so... Uh, you know, whether parents have made serious, serious bad mistakes that have led their kids into rebellion, maybe they themselves were in rebellion and did some really stupid, bad, wicked stuff. Or the parents, you know, lived overall, they, they, they lived a righteous life. Like God is always doing something good in your life that can lead to um, a, a, a great place. Verse five, because the hung, hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare catches their substance. Verse six, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Meaning, when bad things happen to you, Job, these bad things, it's not like it's random chance. Pure nonsense. Now that's the you know that's what uh, 
an atheist would say or an unbeliever in God when bad things, some of them, most of them are superstitious. Most of the world, you, you, you take outside of, uh, of the Christian faith and you take all other, all other religions, including just atheism, the overwhelming majority are as superstitious as these guys, which if a bad thing happens to someone, certainly it's because they did something wrong. That is just rampant. In, in, in basically other religions, and but also in people who have no religions. It, it, because it's, they, they get to explain life, right? And they don't know the Word of God. The Word of God says something very different. That's why we turn to it. It says, for affliction does not come from the dust. This is not a coincidence. It just didn't happen out of nowhere, Job. You messed up. Verse 7, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, that verse is interesting, verse 7, because every once in a while these guys will speak truth. It is true. There's trouble in this life because of sin. Absolutely no question. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Psalm 34 says, the right, even the righteous has many troubles. But does someone know the rest of the verse? What? But the Lord delivers them from them all. That's right. And the deliverance, by the way, may be death. Come be with me. You're done with those troubles. Uh, but verse 8 says, But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Again, throughout the time these guys are talk talking, they will throw in truth. It's always what the devil does. <laughs> Uh, it, he, they throw in truth. Some of it is good even to encourage our souls because it's true. And certainly God does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Verse 10, he gives rain on the earth. He sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Yeah, God does these things. That's true. He frustrates the device of the crafty so their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. The counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. All these things are true. Generally true. Verse 14, they meet with darkness in the daytime. They grope at noontime in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from the hand, so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Verse 17, Behold, happy is the man whom the God corrects. So he sort of is shifting gears. He goes, what's really going on now is God is correcting you. Now, does God correct? Does God correct us when we sin? Yeah, he absolutely does. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with um, Hebrews chapter 11. Verse, uh, rather, chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, 
and scourges every son whom he receives. And so the rest of those verses in Hebrews 12 talks about God will correct us. Thank you, Lord, that you do. Therefore, do, back in Job, he's telling him, therefore, don't despise the chastening of the Almighty. He bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but he makes whole. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he shall redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine. You shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. Again, there's a measure of truth in all these things. He is telling them here to seek the Lord. Now, Satan's not going to do that, by the way. Satan may be using these guys, but Satan's not going to tell you to seek the Lord. Satan's terrified when you seek the Lord. There is a promise in the Bible. Jeremiah 29, and Jesus repeats the same thing. You will seek him. When you seek him, you'll find him when you search for him with all your hearts. So this guy um, is correct here. Verse 24, it says, You shall know what your, that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. So, um, there's some truth there, but then he also way overplays it. Look, if you live a righteous life, your life is just going to be uh, one, one sort of increase by God in your life after another. It says, your tent shall, verse 24 says, your tent, there'll just be peace there. Um, you shall visit your dwelling place, nothing will be wrong. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, your offspring shall be grass in the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age. That's just not necessarily the truth. Interestingly enough, um, there's a bunch of guys who died when they were 28 who the Lord just used spectacularly. I don't know what it is about that age. If you're 28, I, listen, I, I don't I want to scare you, but um, David Brainerd who lived in the 1700s and was a part of the Great Awakening Jonathan Edwards did a biography of him and uh, he uh, was a missionary to Indians died when he was 28 and his diaries survived him and were considered, they, they, they were like people, missionaries throughout the 1800s, which was the next century. That was what they took. In addition to their Bible, they took David Brainerd because he just had so much consecration. Lord. There's another guy 
very similar, kind of known for his godliness. His name is Robert Murray McShane. He lived in Scotland in the 1800s. Same thing with him. Someone published his diaries, died when he was 28. They're just so astonishing in their godliness of a young, young man. The guy became world famous. Um, one of my heroes, Keith Green, the musician, I think he was 28 when he died. Uh, I've never, probably somewhere out there, there's another Keith Green in modern contemporary um, Christian uh, music, but I gotta tell you, you listen to that guy and it's like you, enter, you got into his prayer closet and he's crying out to God. It's just so encouraging listening to him. They all died when he was 28, but this guy is saying, if you're righteous, you're gonna come to the grave at an old age. It's wrong. Interestingly, all three of those guys, if they had lived to an old age, we would not know of them. We'd probably know about Keith Green because he, he just died in the 1980s, but we wouldn't even know the first two. Who else were there? There was a couple, there's one or two other 28-year-olds. It was just remarkable um, how uh, the Lord is all three of them. You read their verses, you read, and you're like, I, I cannot believe this guy was the same. When, um, when, when, they, when they wrote all their things. So uh, he's just, um, he, he's mixing truth with error, and what he's doing is he is leading Job into temptation, really, to, because we are gonna see Job start talking in a manner that's incorrect about God. It's not terrible. He never curses God. He never forsakes his faith. He keeps his faith, and therefore, he is a wonderful example of, um, of, of a believer for us. But um, just the promise of prosperity, you know, uh, once every... 500 Facebook posts, I actually see one that I really like. <laughs> I'm sorry if you post a lot on Facebook. I, I, I like a lot of yours too, but there was one um, that was posted a couple weeks ago, and uh, if you're listening to this message um, at some point, I'm sorry you can't, you can't see my face, but the Facebook um, post is just this picture of this guy going, and underneath it says, when someone finds out that prosperity preachers are preaching the same thing that the devil preached to Jesus Christ when he was tempting him. Remember when he told Jesus? Uh, he said, all the kingdoms of this world, look out, just all the glamour, the riches, the fame, I'll give all of them to you if you'll just bow down to me. That's what a prosperity preacher essentially is doing. They're doing the same, they're speaking like the devil when they are saying you shouldn't be suffering, you shouldn't have sickness in your life, and you should be, you certainly should be wealthy. And there's a version of that that goes on throughout uh, throughout. The, uh, the book of Job. So 
Job is listening to um, all of this. Before I go to chapter six, I do want to, um, where is my, where's the clock? There's the clock. Okay. <laughs> I do want to tell you this, that your words have such tremendous power to bless people. I remember one of the, uh, the verses, I think it was this verse, it may have been, may have been another one of the Proverbs that I put over my, one of my, couple of my daughter's doors, door when they, um, when they grew up. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And it really is the case that you have the capacity to bring life or to get, to get death at work. And uh, when in doubt, keep silent. And by the way, I'm a miserable failure at this. I'm a pastor, I gotta say something. If you're in great suffering, the only thing I know is that God wants to be glorified in your life. But there's, that's, that's the truth. But I mean, I don't have the answers. But I tell you, prayer is powerful. Praying for a person who's in great suffering, praying is powerful. No doubt at all that God wants to be glorified and he will be glorified if you're obedient. In your, um, if you're obedient. I never want to lose the opportunity to quote uh, Ephesians chapter 4. In a, a verse, let me see. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29, or is it? Just let no corrupt word come out of your mouth, but that which is for necessary edification, that it may impart grace on the hearer. Because whatever you're saying, is it, is it imparting grace? Is it imparting grace? In Matthew, Chapter 12, Jesus says, for every idle word we say, there will be a judgment. Now, I thank God for the blood of Jesus, because if not, I'd be in a lot of trouble. But still, that's instructive, right? We should be careful not to just be babbling about. So this guy is violating this just tremendously here. So he provokes Job, and Job says in chapter 6, then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison, 
the terrors of God are arrayed against me. So he says, the terrors of God are arrayed against me. So again, so here you start seeing him falter in terms of his view of the character of God. It's like God has lined up all his terrors and they're, they're sort of coming against me. That's not what's happened. He's been provoked to say these, to start saying these kind of things. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass, or does the ox low over its fodder? Meaning, when a wild donkey does have food, it's not braying, and when an ox does have food, it's, it's not making noises. Can f- flavorless food be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of the egg? My soul refuses to touch them, there is loathsome food to me. So he's lost his appetite amongst everything else. Verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. So he's just saying, Lord, please take my life. I can't take this pain. And... Many of you have been in that place. Some of you are there now and others uh, in the future. You know, Elijah said the same thing. Just please take my life. And is it sin to say that? I really don't know, but we always have to remind ourselves that God is doing a work of glory in whatever is going on in our life. So he's just saying, he said, verse 10, verse 10, then, meaning if God cut him off, I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exalt. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Now from time to time in Job, you read it and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, I think at uh, the end of verse 10, uh, it's, this is a hard one. You even look at the commentators, they don't. They're not even sure. Um, He appears to be saying that if God cut me off, I would deny without, I I would die without denying God. That apparently is what he's saying. Uh, Again, if he cuts me off, um, if he does not spare me, middle of the verse, um, and I die then I will not have concealed the words of the Holy One, meaning I, I was a good testimony till the time I died. Not sure. Verse 11, what strength do I have that I should hope? There's lots of reasons to hope. Always as a Christian, when you have Jesus Christ, he is your hope. And what is my end that I should prolong my life? What's the purpose that my life should carry on anymore? He's just so discouraged. He's like, what is the point? What could possibly be the point? I lost all my health, all my kids, all my servants, all my property. What could be the point? Well, man's extremity is God's opportunity. You've probably heard that. But um, more extreme, 
our circumstances are, the greater God's opportunity just to come in and do uh, a great work. Verse 12, but Satan is always trying to take away our hope, by the way, and um, he's always trying to take away our hope. He's a relentless attack many times on our hope and on our faith. Verse 12, is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze, meaning God, listen, my strength is not like a stone, and my I, I'm not like a bronze, my faith isn't like bronze, I'm a weak person. So this is kind of a healthy dialogue with the Lord. Verse 13, is my help not within me is, and is my success driven from me? I, I, can't, I, I, I can't be successful without you, God. Would you please do something? This is a great prayer. Lord, I need you now. I need you. I have no strength in my trial. So we learn a lot that the Psalms, to me, more than anyone else in the Bible, are an instruction manual on prayer and worship. But Job, um, Job's a good book too. Verse 14, to him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend. Meaning, he's speaking to Eliphaz now, this guy who is accusing him of hidden sin. Listen, shouldn't you be kind? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 Love is defined, and kindness is number two. Does anyone know what number one, defin- the first definition in First uh, Corinthians 13? Does anyone know that? Love suffers long. Love suffers long, number two, and is kind. And he says, look, if you loved me, you would be kind to me. Even if I forsook the fear of the Almighty, even if I completely denied God, he's saying, you should be kind. He says, my brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away. So here he is bringing in some imagery from the Middle East where part of the year there's brooks and part of the year those things are gone. I don't know, does that happen up here anywhere? Maybe, from time to time, yes. But there it's very common because some of the places, there's just a lot of, there may be even snow on some of the peaks that streams would be created, but there's no source, so they just get cut off. He's like, you guys were friends. I thought you were like a nice cold drink, and I would get it but you have turned against me like a deceitful brook. Verse 16, he's going to continue with this analogy for like five verses or something like that. Which are dark because of the ice and into the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. So you go looking for, oh, I know there's a brook here. I know there's a brook. And it's like, whoa, there's no brook, and I need to have a glass of water. Sorry, it's gone. Verse 18, he's comparing his, these guys who are talking to him to that. Verse 18, the paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. 
The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba uh, hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They came, they come here and are confused, meaning people are looking out for these brooks. They're not there. Verse 21, for now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. That's another one that's hard to interpret. I, I think what's going on there, these guys are just freaking out because Job they didn't even recognize who he was when they first saw him. They knew him very well, and he's so afflicted now. They're, they're so filled with fear. It's like they're speaking out of fear and terror. And some interpreters think the reason that they're terrified here, because Job is saying, you guys are just afraid. They're afraid maybe a similar thing was going to happen to them, even though they don't have hidden sin in their life. And so they're making up this bad theology. A lot of theology is made up out of fear. It's just wishful thinking. A lot of bad theology. You know, God would never have a bad thing happen to them, so I'm going to make up this theology that there's no suffering if you're, st you know, to try to convince a theology, to try to convince something that nothing bad's ever going to happen. Verse 22, did I ever say bring something to me or offer? So verse 22 um, through the next, through 24, he's saying, I don't have any hidden sin. I have no sin. Verse 22, did I ever say bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of the oppressor? Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand where I have erred. He's like, accuse me of a sin. I don't have any. Verse 25, how forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? In other words, you're arguing with me here, but you're wrong. Verse 26, do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the power fatherless and you undermine your friend. You guys, I thought you were friends. You're not. Verse 28, now therefore be pleased to look at me for I would never lie to your face. Yield now. Let there be no injustice. Meaning just stop. Stop. Unfortunately, they're not going to stop. They're going to continue for chapters and chapter and chapter. Um, yes, concede my righteousness still stands. So he's saying just Admit it, I, I, I am a righteous person. You have never seen me sin. Well, verse 30, is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? So, um, th th so he's, he's, he's challenging uh, them there. So the Lord, is, the Lord is good. We get into situations where we don't always know why. We are in them, but we know that God is going to be glorified in our lives. But we need to be very careful how we counsel someone in suffering. And when we are in suffering, we should not impugn on the character of God.